This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is made possible by 420 friendly service providers in the Gondrepreneur Business Directory. If you need professional help with your business, from accounting to legal services to consulting, marketing, payment processing, or insurance, visit gondrepreneur.com slash businesses to find service providers who specialize in helping cannabis entrepreneurs like you. Visit the Gondrepreneur Business Directory today at gondrepreneur.com slash businesses. Hey there, I'm your host, T.G. Brandfall, and thank you for listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of entrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Uh, today, I'm joined by Meg Sanders. She's the CEO of Canna Provisions, uh, who opened Colorado Medical Dispensary Mindful in 2010. In Colorado, she worked with a governor-appointed committee to develop retail regulations. Uh, Meg is also the co-founder for Consultancy for firm Will and Way, which advises startups, government agencies, investors, and institutions. How are you doing this morning, Meg? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing just fine. Uh, real excited to talk about Massachusetts. Uh, it's a, I live in New York. It's a border state. Um, and there's a lot to talk about. And, and I think that it's been kind of overlooked uh, since it rolled out. But before we get into the details of Massachusetts, I want to talk about you and your background. How did you end up in the cannabis space? Um, well, you know, it's a it's an interesting journey, as I often hear from fellow uh, fellow cannabis uh, industry people that I work with. Um, Colorado started uh, kind of a wild west approach to uh, canna- the cannabis business in, Col- in, in 2009, 2010. And basically, it was all based on the coal memo that came out that basically said if you're in a state legislation, st- state legislated program or a state program that participates in some type of registration process, mm-hmm. that you weren't going to be a target for the federal government. And people took that and went, that's us because it's in our constitution um, from um, from the year 2000. And from there on, it just went crazy. And every warehouse you could imagine that probably been sitting empty for a couple of years um, to every storefront that a landlord would lease to, dispensaries and grows were popping up everywhere. And in that time frame. I had reached a bit of a glass ceiling in the in my role as um, compliance director for a small trading firm, and it was clear that I wasn't going to go any further in that. I wasn't super passionate about it either, and this uh, opportunity came through a college friend, and so I kind of spoke with him on and off for several months before deciding to take the plunge and. Um, you know, really just jumped in with both feet, so to, so to speak. Uh, it was, it was, um, it was challenging and frightening and at the same time, really exciting to be doing something like this, where you really understand that we're never going to see something like this again in our lifetime. And so being able to participate in the industry at the very early stages was, um, was a was a very intriguing uh, proposition, and that's that's how I got started. So, what were some of those considerations that you were sort of making with yourself as you were 
weighing entering the space, going from something, you know, quite a traditional industry to something, you know, sort of outsider, sort of counterculture? Well, I mean, there was a lot of things we had to consider. Um, first of all, we were cultivating well over the federal maximum of 99 plants. Um, so that right there was a, was mandatory sentencing, you know, so that was something we had to be concerned about. Um, we were operating under the, uh, trust, I guess, of the state of Colorado that they actually had a good handle on, on how to regulate this or, um, ideas on how to move forward in regulations to keep the businesses safe. And I think the other part of it was just the social side, you know, the social stigma. Um, My kids were young. I was a volunteer in their school. Um, I had started a youth football program in my town of Boulder, Colorado. And there was a lot to consider to make sure that I didn't do any damage to the the entities that I was working with. And also um, being able to exit gracefully from those to this business And that took some time. The funny part is after I did exit and then kind of went back and started talking to some of my coaches from the youth football program, they were just like, oh my gosh, we so would not have cared about that. And I'm like, you might not have cared, but there might've been parents that were just like, you can't be in this industry and run this youth football program. So that's just one little anecdote. Anecdote. Um, I think overall, the concern was definitely, you know, could legally I get into some trouble And, you know, being a mom of small kids, that was obviously a huge concern, but the opportunity to do so, um, our legal team at the time, um, and then also, you know, working with the state of Colorado, I think for the most part, it was a back of the mind thing, but it wasn't front and center for me, for me every single day, that getting the work done and building the business was what I was focused on. So you talk about, you know, the, the nascent uh, days of Colorado and, and now you're in the you know nascent days of the Massachusetts market. Can you briefly describe and compare uh, those two industries in the in the early days? Well, I definitely can. So in the beginning in Colorado, there was zero regulation. Um, there was nothing that you could look at either in statute or in local rule that you could go, oh, this is how we're supposed to operate. I mean, we were really flying the airplane and building it at the same time. It was, there was no other way to describe it. And then the regulations started coming through, legislation started coming through, and we had to quickly fall in line um, from a business model that we had started to a completely different business model that the state mandated. And that was basically vertical integration, which was something that Massachusetts did as well. Um, And that basically means that we have to cultivate um, and sell our product uh, from seed to sale. And And I think Colorado at the time thought, this is the best way to track it. If you're growing it and you're selling it in your business, that's going to be easier to track than if we're growing it someplace and then it's getting driven somewhere and then it's getting sold somewhere. And this was before you know, there was really even seed to sale tracking software available. You know, it was, it was way back when literally there was, there, there wasn't even software to, to man, to do the sale, the sales of cannabis at the retail level. I mean, we were really making it up as we went along. The difference in Massachusetts is they had several States to look at in order to build what they were building. Um, in the very beginning in Massachusetts on the medical side, they started with a nonprofit 
model, which at the time, even though we were in, at Mindful, we were looking at state, state expansion, different states, expanding into different states. Um, but Massachusetts quickly fell off the list because of this nonprofit status. And it was really a, a, just a general consensus that that is a really tough business model to manage. And you're adding additional compliance because it's nonprofit. And then, um, then obviously legalization happened. And similar to Colorado, Massachusetts had this, this you know, previous medical market existing that they could build on. And um, overall, you know, they had a, a, even though it's taken a long time to roll out the actual businesses into the market, overall, I think they had a, a good strategy on how to do it. Um, hands down, one of the biggest differences between Massachusetts and Colorado was Massachusetts really um, took their time in getting people through the state licensing process. In Colorado, people were already open and functioning and invested a lot of money into grows and stores. So trying to then take that all away from somebody, you know, from these businesses through regulation wasn't, I don't think it's really how Colorado operates in general. Colorado is a very independent, small business minded um, state. And I think they were just trying to figure out how do we get these thousands of businesses at this point licensed and in regulation so that we can monitor them. I think Massachusetts probably looked at that and went, oh, no, no, we do not want to do that. We also don't want to do a super limited licensing structure. And what they did was decide to leave it at the local level, which is similar to Colorado, in that if you don't have local approval here in Massachusetts, you cannot move forward. It's impossible to move forward with the state. And Colorado is very similar to that. And they both have a very honorable system as far as local or home rule, um, functioning. And, and I, I'm grateful for that. It's nice to know that we're in a town right now in Massachusetts, Lee and Lee, just in the heart of the Berkshires and they love us and they want us to be here and they're excited that we're here. And that is a phenomenal space to be in. Whereas I would hate to be in a town where the state said we could be there, but the town really didn't want you. And that could have just been a super contentious relationship in an already challenging industry. So why do you think Lee was so sort of open-armed about it? Is, is there an economic issue there? Uh, I'm not that familiar with sort of the, the economics of Lee, Massachusetts. Well, I, I think for the most part, it did. I mean, I can't say it started out that way 100%. I mean, we definitely had some, some naysayers um, at, the select, at the selectman level. Um, but overall... Western Massachusetts is a fairly friendly cannabis area. Um, the state, uh, the, the Department of Health did a, did a survey a few months back, and over 30% of adults in Western Massachusetts use recreational cannabis on a regular basis. I mean, that's a huge number. Um, I think what happened was, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, there's a lot of respect for what the voters have voted for. And I think I heard that multiple times in select board meetings and that, hey, I'm not exactly for this, but our constituents have voted to support it. And so we need to implement it. And I think as they saw a few open and they saw the potential for revenue, they saw the potential to bring more people into the town just as tourists or visitors um, people warmed up. And I think once we had the police department on our side, as far as this is great, they've got a great plan, they're going to be safe, that this is not a concern. We had the fire department on our side. 
Um, we had local businesses cheering us on, obviously, because there's an opportunity to drive a lot more individuals into the town of Lee to go to restaurants and bars and shops and all of that. And I think that's just, that was what happened. It's, it, they, it started with, this is what our constituents want. And so let's try to put this into a thoughtful play here. And then we came to the table and I think our commitment to the town, our commitment to building a strong Lee through cannabis um, really won everyone over. And it wasn't just lip service. I mean, we have, we are in, we are in Lee um, neck deep. And I say that um, in lots of different ways. I mean, we bought a house here. We, we live here now. Um, we have over 600 volunteer hours in local um, nonprofits like the Humane Society, like cleaning up the streets, like, um, you know, trash pickup and that kind of thing all around it at various lakes and rivers. And I think overall, the town has just seen that we are um, we are here to stay, and we want to be the best stewards we can possibly be from a from a business aspect as well as a community aspect. I always find the commentary about you know from from CEOs and, and business owners about their experience with select boards, right? Because the public doesn't necessarily always see that side of it, um, and. I mean, you took this a step further with your work developing regulations in Colorado, which I mean, these 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 sort of meetings are very interesting to me. You know, when I read about them, I'm like, what, you know, what was that like in there? Uh, can you tell me about some of those, some of that work? You know, what were some of the unanimous decisions? Which ones were a bit more controversial to the members of the panel? Um, do you, are you asking me about Colorado in specific? Yes. Specifically? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So first of all. Um, that was a really interesting time frame. I have to say, I, I don't know that I, I, I wish I had a little more time under my belt in the industry before taking that one on. But at the time that I was the one that they picked and I was really um, honored to do so, I learned so much so quickly, um, just listening to different stakeholders from law enforcement who was really against this, um, a lot of mental health and um, addiction specialists that were also on the panel that were, you know, pushing back really hard. And for the most part, I was the only ones on the on the panel um, as far as the actual task force that represented the businesses, and and I and I felt like. I'm glad that I was there to, to remind them as, in, in as thoughtful way as I could that we are, we're touching and discussing existing businesses that have employees and payroll and inventory costs and rents and loans and all kinds of things. So we can't be flippant about it. We need to be very thoughtful to make sure that whatever legislation we push forward um, or recommended legislation that we push forward as a task force has to be thoughtful about the businesses too. It just can't be all about the fear-based. It has to also focus on the reality of, of businesses and Colorado being a thoughtful state about small business. And that's really what all the cannabis businesses were. There's this thought process. And, and I remember one of the contentious things that came up was an activist that was calling me out in particular about I'm this big corporation and we're just doing this for the money and, you know, yada, yada, which we hear often. And it was just so interesting because I, I, my response was, um, so by definition, I'm a small business. I have 107 employees. So right there, by definition, that's who, who we are. And by the way, about 60% of the people that we employ at the time 
we're, we're cannabis patients. Like how much more of a supporter of patients and, and what's important to them could I possibly be than providing a great place for them to work where they could actually work and feel safe about what, about being a patient. Um, so that was some of, some of the contention. It was that, 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 you know, we were, we were more focused on money instead of the actual plant or the actual patient. And, and it was fun to kind of be able to go, you know, it's just not who we are. And I appreciate that that's what you think we are, but we're, we're not. Um, the other thing that was fascinating, and this is something that I truly, you know, where I am now in, in this life, um, as opposed to where I was then and where the industry was then, um, and especially the governor and especially, um, I would say a lot of the legislators is the hard push to make sure that drug felons could not participate in the industry. And Colorado started that way. And we maintain that, that thought through, um, amendment 64 task force to, to, uh, regulate adult use. And that's a huge regret I have because it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, but from the lobbyist standpoint, from all the business associations, from, um, definitely from top down, from the governor down, it was clear that that was not a just that was not a negotiation. That was not a point that we could negotiate. And fast forward now to Massachusetts and other great states that have done phenomenal work. Illinois, for example, um, they're going to expunge like almost eight hundred thousand drug um, drug violations. I mean, that's just that's what should happen. And Massachusetts has made a massive commitment. Um, even though it's really painfully slow rolling out, there's, there's probably a million reasons why that is, but, um, they have made a massive commitment to people who have nonviolent drug offenses and making sure that they get a first bite at the apple, um, make, making sure that equity is a top priority and making sure that people that live in, um, areas of disproportionate impact. So in economically challenged zones are the ones that are put first through the system. Um, the challenge is that the regulations weren't really written for that. And so it, we're finding that it's not happening as fast or as furious as we thought it would. Um, and hopefully that that changes after some more legislation that and rules and regs that I know we're all working on right now. So, and and to, to that point, uh, I, I believe Boston just gave their first social equity license to the Boston area. Um which which is uh the, the guy was from Dorchester and which was uh one of the places that were uh, affected most by the war on drugs um so you know i do i do want to sort of go back you you were talking about you know your employees um you know how a lot of them are, are medical cannabis patients um and i i was doing some research for this and i and i read about dude, the training program that you implemented at canna provisions um so could you briefly describe that program and and how your experience in colorado led you to utilize such a thorough sort of process um i'm more than happy to go through that and and honestly if you look back at what we were trying to do in colorado um we were honestly, we were lucky, lucky to arrive and turn the lights on and get money in the drawer and cannabis to sell. Um, we were running so hard there with, with, with literally no time to plan or, or even think about employee training programs, especially in the beginning. And we kind of grew into that as we got our feet under us. And as we had, um, you know, a, a stabilized business plan and our grow was fully built out, we were finally able to go what's missing here. And it's what's missing is a documented 
um, and thoughtful and thorough training program. And Mindful was very, very good at implementing um, all kinds of training from OSHA training all the way to, um, you know, intimate cannabis training and like really understanding the science of the plant. And it was just, it was nice to have a bit of a base of that to bring to Massachusetts and to, to be able to outline what is most important from a retail establishment and, and how do we be as thoughtfully forward facing to the customer as we possibly can be. And through that, um, I was able to rely on some previous groups that I had worked with. One is um, Zing Train, which comes out of uh, Zingerman's Deli, which is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they're a remarkable firm, which you definitely should research at some point. I highly recommend people learn all about them. But they have a phenomenal training program. And so we were, we were able to bring them out actually twice to train our team here just on customer service. And um, it's, a, it's a full day's training with several days of follow-up and quizzing and practice and role-playing and all of that. And that has been the backbone of this company in that if we're known for anything, we want to be known for our customer service. Because at the end of the day, cannabis is, you know, you know, you can, you can, we're, we're selling cannabis just like any other, any of our other competitors. And for the most part, the quality is, you know, fairly standard throughout the state right now in Massachusetts. I mean, there's, there's some heavy, there's some high, there's some high standards and there's some not great standards yet, but for the most part, any, any of our competitors you go to, you're going to see comparable types of products. And so where can you differentiate the experience? Well, you can differentiate it with the look and feel of your store, which is one aspect that we definitely embraced. And we can talk about that in a minute. But where we knew that we could make a major impact and really change um, a cannabis consumer's experience at the dispensary by creating a very thoughtful and on purpose attitude of we want to meet each and every customer exactly where they are on their cannabis journey. And that was the backbone of how we built this. And so far, the reviews are um, supporting the business model and our employees are loving being able to be so customer service focused. And by the amount that we're growing every single day, day over day, week over week, it looks like it's a successful um, plan. So we're very excited about that. The other thing that we've been able to implement is, is very traditional training and, and experience training from Colorado. Um, cannabis trainers are run by Maureen McNamara um, has written a specific responsible vendor training for the state of Massachusetts. And she's been out to train our team twice. And that's been an awesome experience as well, because she's a phenomenal trainer. She's very thorough. And she actually gets you excited about compliance and ID checking. So that's, that's a big plus and a feather in her cat. Um, and then on top of all of that, we have brought in plant experts and vendors to train on their products. Um, and, and it's just, we, we want to always be learning and, uh, you know, really for the most part, every single day we can get better. And that's our focus. How do we, how do we do, how do we do it better today? And that's what we do. 
So full disclosure to the listeners, I'm actually going to be going to uh, two cannabis revisions in Lee in about a month. Uh, so it's it's this is very exciting. I'm I'm getting excited uh, more and more uh, to 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 check this place out. Um, the 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 employees, the customer service employees. I mean, these are the ones that you know the, that the customer sees. Um, but what about an executive team? You know, what, what do you look for uh, in in those members of the company? I think the, the top, top piece that we look for is um, authenticity as, as just a human being. And what I mean by that is we spend a lot of time together and we're building something really special. And we want to, uh, we're, what we've looked for and found successfully are people that are as committed as we are, um, that believe in operating in an ethical nature, that believe that all of us are customers of each other. And what that means is that it's not just our customer that we focus on, the actual customer that comes to the door, but each of us serves each other in one way or the other. And you can be not so great and professional in doing that, or you can be top of your game at every request and, and really pushing yourself to make sure you're serving those around you. So I think that was really the the biggest part is commitment. Um, knowing that that starting a starting a retail store, starting any business is you know an up at dawn, pride swallowing siege. But especially in cannabis, it it really is. And you know it's eighty hours, a hundred hours a week that we're putting in to make sure um, that we put on a phenomenal experience for our customers. And that executive level is um, critical to making sure that everybody below walks the walk, right? If we're not walking the walk, then they have every excuse on the planet not to walk the walk. And so we, we hold ourselves to high standards, whether that be from business experience or um, other retail exam, other retail experience, um, which is one of the people that we've hired. We hired somebody who's working on his master's and he is um, really, really talented in the tech area as well as inventory area. And so that he's part of our, our you know, our management team. Um, what our general manager is a, is a, a two-time, two-tour um, in, in Afghanistan veteran who um, remarkably interviewed a ton and for whatever reason, and this isn't the first story, first time I've heard this, but for whatever reason, um, people that were interviewing him kind of discounted his his military experience and, and the people that he um, was responsible for. And so basically his management, which is the military. And so we were really fortunate that no one snapped him up because we were able to, and he has been hands down the heart and soul of this company. Um, another executive who is, uh, very passionate about cannabis, um, is, um, just, a, just a phenomenal human being and kind of took a big leap after being in corporate marketing, um, and said, I want to do this. And I'm like, Whoa, you're leaving some really big, um, positions, you know, positions with like national brands running their marketing. And we are so thrilled to have him as part of it. And the common denominator of all of these people is they're also very passionate about cannabis. Um, cannabis has, has been a solution for them in their health or in their mental health or just in their general wellness routine. So I think we share this love for the plant. We share this love for um, legally being able to consume cannabis in our homes. And we also are committed a thousand percent to building a business that we can all be proud of. 
So we're talking about higher level employees. Uh, a little earlier, we talked about uh, social equity. Uh, but what I want to ask is is about gender equity and, and high levels uh, of cannabis businesses. Uh, in the industry, uh, female CEOs, women CEOs represent 27%, which is better than the 5% uh, of the ranks of the S&P 500 firms. Um, is there a way the industry can work toward more gender equity in this high level role? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I actually get asked that quite a, quite a bit. And one of the hardest parts about this business, and I would say probably any business where you, where you have to raise a significant amount of capital, um, in order to get a business off the ground. And for the most part, the people that we've been speaking to or, or have been able to find that are interested in investing in, in investing in the cannabis industry is mostly men. And often what happens is people hire people that look like them or came from the same background from them or, you know, that have similar interests. And what I'm finding is even though we may have a higher percentage of, of women CEOs and maybe women executives than, than the national average, I'm still finding that nine times out of 10, I'm the only woman at the table when I'm speaking with investors or when I'm speaking with, um, um, you know, various other, various other business people out there. And I think that's part of the issue is that there's, there's just this, lack of clear path, in my opinion, on how women can just grab an industry full heartedly and jump in with both feet. And it's really hard to do if you don't have capital, if you don't have that security of some money in the bank to actually build a business. So from my perspective, it starts with that. I think I've had a much harder time than my counterparts that are also CEOs raising money. I think it's a much different conversation. And I think overall, we found some very thoughtful investors that, uh, that believe in what we're building and, and bought into my, to my pedigree, so to speak. But I can tell you that even those conversations are really, really tough. It's just, it's been really hard. How do we change that? Um, I think from, from, you know, a lot of studies that I've read about this particular issue is really being an example and that's what I try to model for my employees here, not just women, not just minorities, but all of our employees. And that, you know what, there's a lot of things we don't know. And there's a lot of things we have to figure out. And women in particular, you know, just based on some studies, I'm not saying it's a thousand percent, but just, just some studies are more prone to accept a job of which they know they can do as opposed to accept a job that they have no idea what, what, what is going on, but they're going to give it a shot. Whereas, whereas men are much more, will, will much more quickly raise their hand to take on a job that they have no idea what it is, but they'll just do it. And that's just, that's just one fascinating aspect of it. And I took a huge risk doing this business. I mean, in 2010, no one knew how to do it. I'm just like, well, I guess we'll figure it out together. But I also had a really unique thing of starting a football league, which I, by the way, I'd never run a sports league before. And I had 40 coaches and 300 kids the first year. Wow. So I really had to figure it out as I went along. So I, I, I guess my point is, is that if there's any message I could tell 
women in particular, is you don't have to know it. You can figure it out as you go. Believe me, you're plenty resourceful and brilliant and talented and creative to figure it out. So just jump in. And if you fail, you fail. And if you don't, then great. But even failure is often um, one of the best things that can happen to you. I really appreciate uh, that your insight uh, that it, 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 it's fast. I mean, as you said, it's fascinating. I mean, several you know of the the studies that you know you cited, and it, 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 you don't think about those things, right? When you're, you're you sort of think of it as like this boys' club, but there is uh, you know the sort of uh, underlying sort of trend that's been going on. Um, so I really appreciate you talking to me about that. I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk about what's happening right now in Massachusetts. Um, you know, there's some good and some bad, uh, the, the potential for, uh, you know, social use clubs. Uh, and then there's also a large number of municipalities opting out. So uh, what else is going on? Um, you know, where do you see both of these issues sort of going? What's going on in Massachusetts? Well, I think, um, you know, overall, Massachusetts has succeeded in what their goal was, which was being, you know, basically the most highly regulated state. Um, I, I think that that's that was really the goal. They they really wanted to be the the best at making sure this was a tight industry, and meaning there was not um, there wasn't all the things that people are concerned about with this industry, which is you know product going out the back door or um, you know money not being accounted for those kinds of things. And I think overall Massachusetts did a phenomenal job as far as creating regulations and sticking to those regulations. But the challenge with a lot of this, especially when you're looking at social consumption and delivery and wanting to make sure that, that equity still has the first take of this, is that we've, we've said we want equity and we want just, you know, people from disproportionate um, impact communities and nonviolent drug offenders to be able to participate. But the way it's set up right now, which is you have to have local approval first, and the only way you can get local approval is to have a location that you're probably paying rent on. And the process for this entire licensure is, you know, a year minimum. Wow. So if I'm a nonviolent drug offender, which bank do I call for my small business loan to fund me for a year on maybe I might get a license. And so right there, we've really set it. We didn't set the table right. And that's okay because we need to reset it. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. And I think there's a lot of conversations going on about that. And the same thing is going to happen with social equity. You're still going to have to get local approval. You're going to have to find the location. And then you're going to have to go through the state process. And that means you have to have funding available to you day one, not day 101. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think that the, that's where the biggest hiccup is. And I've thought of lots of ways to, to fix it. The number one thing being the value that investors want to see is that you have a license. And maybe there's a way that the state could license someone you know, provisionally or contingent upon getting a local you know, getting local approval. And if you have a state license, it's a lot easier to go to a landlord and say, Hey, so this is what I want to do. And this is who I am. And here's my state license. See, the state's already said I could do this. 
and be able to negotiate in good faith a reasonable lease and do it that way than this this kind of back asswards way that it's being done now. And the way it's set up, especially on the on the on the plant touching side as far as cultivation, retail, manufacturing, that kind of thing. And I I'm kind of seeing, I'm hoping that's not how that's going to be in delivery and in social equity and um, social consumption clubs. And we're kind of watching that regulation as we go. But overall, we have to be able to put people that we want to promote in this industry to a level playing field of power when they're negotiating stuff that's going to stick with them for a really long time. So the greening of the industry already happens. We already see as soon as somebody knows you're in cannabis, they immediately think because you have a cannabis grower or a cannabis store, you have ATMs just spitting money out at everywhere. And we're all just running around with money falling out of our pocket. And the truth is, it's a very expensive industry to operate. It's very expensive. And I think, you know, so, so what we see is increased lease rates. We see um, exorbitant requirements, deposits in second and third months and horrible outs. And I mean, it's just, it, it can be really challenging. So what I think needs to happen if we want to see this progression, this important, important step that the state is so focused on, we want to see the playing field leveled. And it isn't just by going, well, we just need to give them $10 million or $5 million or $1 million. That's part of the equation. Absolutely. We need to make sure that that equity applicants and disproportionate impact, impact um, applicants, they have to have access, access to funding. But what's even more important is that they actually have a, a, a place of power to go to landlords and go to, you know, all the different vendors that we have to work with to negotiate that, that thoughtful rate and being able to move through the system much more quickly than a year. I don't know a lot of people. I know people right now that are in the licensing process that have been paying rent for over a year and a half at a location that they don't know if they're going to get local approval. That's unbelievably risky. <laughs> it, talk about just like get the trash can, put your money in it and light it on fire. Right. I mean, it's, it is pretty much that risky. And Unfortunately, this is this is how it was set up. And and like I said, there's some good to that because, you know, we're certainly benefiting from a limited licensing. Um, you know, there's only 22 or 21 licensed entities right now. So, of course, we're benefiting from that. Um, and I don't think at the end of the day, especially with all the bans that have happened or long term moratoriums that exist, I don't think we're going to see thousands of stores in Massachusetts. I just don't think that's what was ever going to happen. Um, but overall, you know, how, how do we fix what's broken is we have to level the playing field as much as possible. It's incredibly interesting, sort of your response. Uh, meanwhile, you know, you talk about, you know, your experience in Colorado where people accuse you of being, you know, money hungry and, and you know, corporate cannabis. And then you're like, no, we actually want more uh, people to enter this space. Um Finally, what advice uh, do you have for entrepreneurs looking to enter the space? I mean, you talked about sort of your advice, you know, for women to jump in feet first. Uh, what, what about sort of the general, you know, would-be cannabis business operator? My biggest advice for any entrepreneur, whether you're getting into cannabis or not, is to do what you love. And I know that sounds, um, I don't know, a bit cliche maybe. But it's very, very true. 
And what I mean by that is when you're starting a business, whether it be cannabis or otherwise, you are going to be working your tail off for a really long time. Sometimes it's years. Sometimes it's, um, you know, a few years, who knows, but it's a really long time that you sacrifice your family sacrifices, um, in order to like build this. And I would just say the starting point is, are you passionate about what you're doing? Because you only live once. And I say this, you know, as a 50 something year old woman looking back, um, and it's easy to chase the easy money or it seems easy, but is it rewarding and is it fulfilling? Because ultimately you're going to spend a ton of your time. You spend more time at work than you do with your family for the most part. And if you're not doing what you love, what is the point? I mean, life is so much bigger than that. And that would be my first advice. The second piece is go into business with people that you adore. It is really, really important um, that you are working with people that you want to be with because, again, you're with them more than you're with their family. Um, my partner, Eric, and I are tied at the hip. I mean, we are personally involved. We're also um, business partners. And so we really are embracing that whole mentality of we, we do what we love with people that we love. And so far it's working out great for us. Um, but I would just say, you know, those are, those are the big keys to me. And then my third piece of advice is make sure that your family is really on board with what you're doing. And it can be, it's hard enough to start a business. It's hard enough to start a cannabis business. Um, and what happens if you don't have phenomenal family networking and everybody's on the same page rowing together is a lot of upset in one part of your life. And, and you just don't want that. Um, so regardless whether you're going into cannabis or just looking for a business altogether, um, I would just say those are, those are the big, big three that I would, I would focus on. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your insight. Uh, where can people find out more about Canna Provisions, find out more about you? CannaProvisionsGroup.com is our website. Um, you can also find fantastic reviews about us on Google and on Weed Maps and Leafly. You can hear what customers are saying for themselves about their experience here. Um you can find me on Facebook and I don't know, probably a lot of other platforms, just Meg Sanders, you know, just find me. <laughs> and then, um, you know, like I said, if, if anybody has any questions at all about what we're doing here in, in, in Lee, Massachusetts and why Canna Provisions is such a unique space, we invite you to come. Um, we've set up a store that is completely different than any dispensary you've ever been in. And we look forward to, to loving you up when you come. <laughs> I, I, I'm very excited to be there uh, in about a month. Uh, my guest has been Meg Sanders. She's the CEO of Canna Provisions. Uh, she's also the co-founder of consultancy firm Will & Way, which we actually didn't get that much into. So I might have to have you back, which I would love to do. Thank you so much uh, for being on the Entrepreneur Podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store on the Gontrepreneur.com website. You'll find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. I've been your host, T.G. Brandfalton. <laughs>